Hi, I'm uh, Walter Mead, and I would like to welcome you to a very special conversation here at Hudson Institute. Uh, this is really a, we're actually very privileged today because uh, this conversation with Yoram Hazoni about his book, The Virtue of Nationalism, is coming literally on the day of publication. So that alarm you heard was the official signal. The book is now <laughs> published. And not only is it published, but we have, uh, there will be after the um, conversation, there'll be a chance for you to buy the book over there. And possibly, if Yoram is favorably disposed, he will sign it for you. Um, one secret uh, that I learned when I first published my first book years ago that apparently authors tell each other is that when you have a book out, you should always go into bookstores and offer to sign the book, as many of them as you can. And the reason for this is that once a book has been autographed, it's considered technically spoiled, and it can't be returned by the bookstore <laughs> to the publisher if it's unsold. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've uh, made it a practice since then to go. I've been banned from several bookstores as a result. All right. Anyway, um, Yoram Hazoni is a very interesting thinker and writer. Many of you have read some of his previous books, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, The Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul, God and Politics in Esther. Uh, he is published in many leading publications in the United States and abroad. Um, and the book on nationalism comes at a time when obviously questions of nationalism, nationality, and cosmopolitanism, and universality are really at the kind of top of the political um, agenda in the United States and in many other places around the world. Our other speaker to this morning is someone who I have long known and admired, and I expect many people here have also done that. Uh, William Galston is not only a senior fellow at Brookings Institution, but he is uh, a colleague, a fellow columnist of mine at the Wall Street Journal. I should actually say I'm a fellow columnist of his because Bill has, has been doing this for five years and I've been doing it for closer to five months. Um, how and he- You're already running out of ideas. <laughs> you know, I am. I'm, I'm starting to recycle, you know. Uh, uh, actually, I think we're both fortunate that the the age of Trump, whatever else it may be, is an age that is very kind to the journalism business. Uh, he says a lot of mean things about journalists, but he makes news and he makes people interested in the news. So what I thought we would do, the, the, what we're really going to be doing here today is having a conversation uh, between Yoram and Bill, and I will occasionally uh, jump in with comments. And at, then we'll turn later to a session of Q&A with the audience. When we do that, um, I would like to remind you that a question is a, a short intervention, which ends, which grammatically the end of it would be punctuated with one of these little question marks, as they're known. 
and usually also ends in a rising inflection. The tone of voice tends to go <laughs> up. So please, and we would like to have as many questions as possible, so please make yours short. All right, you're on. Since this is the first day of publication, everybody here except those of us who got advanced copies has a completely valid excuse for not having read the book. Uh, from now on, no one will have an excuse, but today everyone does. So can you give us uh, just a kind of a short overview, kind of why you wrote it and what are the, what are the themes you really want to get across? We have, we have. I, th I think, as you said, it's very difficult to miss um, the uh, outpouring of uh, interest in nationalism. At least, if if you're judging by uh, how often the word uh, appears. I mean, you you literally can't go a day in uh, in the American media, in the European media, and this is true for media in many other uh, countries as well. Uh, without there being um, uh, several and sometimes uh, many um, essays and uh, uh, write-ups, declamations, uh, assertions uh, about nationalism, almost almost over, overwhelmingly negative, right? And the uh, the term nationalism, I think everybody knows, is uh, is uh, usually thrown out there uh, in order to disparage someone or something. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's associated with uh, xenophobia, with uh, racism. Uh, there's this, uh, this term white nationalism, which is, is used uh, constantly, even though as far as I know, there never has been a white nation. Uh, ne nevertheless, it's used all the time. And um, I, I think it's terrible confusion. And it's not simply uh, you know, aesthetically displeasing to have people uh, not be educated on, uh, on, on, on the subject, but it's actually dangerous. Because the, uh, the idea of, of uh, nationalism, the, the, the concept of, um, of a principled stance that sees the world as governed best when uh, nations are given uh, independence, when they are allowed to chart their own course, free from interference from foreign conquerors and empires. There, there's a good reason why this is uh, at this idea is uh, at the heart of the uh, Anglo-American political tradition. Later, later the Western tradition more generally, and uh, it, it's not just a matter of. We like to have barbecues and ring church bells on the 4th of July. Rather, the barbecues and the church bells uh, used to, to some extent still do, but they, they, they used to encapsulate a, uh, and express a love of something, and that something was national freedom. And notice that national freedom is not identical to individual freedom. It, the two actually are, are closely related. Part of the argument of, of my book is that you actually can't have individual freedoms without national freedom. But even before you get to that stage of the argument, 
there was an intrinsic good that was recognized by many peoples and many nations, and people were used to be enthusiastic about uh, not only their own national independence, but that of other people. So people of, of, of goodwill would, uh, would, would, would be pleased and, and excited that India gained its independence, that Greece gained its independence, that Israel gained its independence, uh, that Poland gained its independence after such a complicated history. That used to be something that uh, decent people considered to be uh, a moral sentiment and, uh, and something to, to, to work towards. Now, that has, in the last generation, that, that, that sense, I think, has, uh, has been disappearing. Uh, it's been um, um, under siege from, um, f f first of all, fr from a, an intellectual culture, which uh, is most familiar from the, from the universities and the media, that relates to the nation um, I, I would say not, not so differently from the way it relates to the family or the, the church or God. It's just one of these ideas that are kind of a, a, a throwback to some kind of barbaric earlier history. And, and, and a, a decent person, now the goal of a decent person should be to overcome all of these primitive attachments and reach a world that will look if not exactly like the European Union, then, uh, then some kind of um, uh, rules-based new world order where someone is laying down the moral good for the whole world and someone is adjudicating and where necessary, someone is enforcing. And uh, it's been about a generation that most I think it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that most of uh, the leadership of the mainstream political parties, both in, in America and in Europe, have been gradually moving in the direction of seeing that as, as mankind's good uh, and becoming resentful, bitter, maybe even in some cases uh, hate, hateful, hating, when someone comes and says, well, but national independence, I, we still believe in this. So I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people, you know, that uh, I, I find New World Order to be a, a really terrible idea. And uh, in fact, any time that someone comes along and says, you know, I, we were just so smart, <laughs> we've just, We've just got the answers, economically, religiously, constitutionally. We just know how everybody on earth should live and how it's just a question of, of, of implementing. Every time I hear that, it, it troubles me. And, uh, and I wrote the book in order to share these troubles that I have with uh, the idea that, that, uh, that decent, decent people, smart people, should all share and participate in this um, construction of what I consider to be uh, moving, moving towards a, uh, a kind of a new world empire, and why I am sympathetic, or, or more than sympathetic, why I'm very sympathetic to uh, the many movements of 
resistance. Now, I rush to say that that doesn't mean that uh, I can or want to defend every nationalist movement in every country and every particular nationalist leader. I mean, the, I, I think that's, uh, it, it's too much to ask for, for any kind of political movement to be uh, all based on, you know, just really good people, the kind of people you want to marry your, your, your daughter. It, it, that's too much. But to say that, well, let's, let's think about this. Is the world really better off when, when we leave different nations to pursue their own destinies as much as we can, rather than attempting to come up with the one answer for everyone? I think that at that level, the argument really must be conducted. And uh, now, is, uh, as Walter said, now, now is the time for it. Uh, there's a remarkable scarcity of, uh, uh, of serious attempts to grapple with this question. For a long time, people thought, oh, that's just, you know, that's just John Lennon stuff. That's not serious. But now it's clear that it's deadly serious. So here's a first book on the subject, and I, I look forward to there being many more. Great. Thanks, Ron. How would you respond? Well, uh, <coughs> I'm not sure I'm going to accept your verb as the basis of the procedure because we we picked Bill for this because yeah. he's he's very argumentative. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'd like to do not so I don't want to respond so much as elucidate because I think you all deserve to walk away from this hour and a half with the clearest possible understanding of the argument that Yoram Hazoni is actually putting on putting on the table and. Five minutes gave you an opportunity to do little more than to express a motivation for the book, as opposed to laying out the argument of the book. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that, if it's OK with the moderator, with a series of leading questions. Uh, you know, first of all, I mean, you've used the word nationalism and nation. Uh, what is your understanding or definition of what a nation mm. is? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Yeah. Um, That's what they always say in Washington. <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't take you long to catch on. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Look, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a very important question because uh, the, the, part of the argument of the book is, is that there is a, uh, a, mainstream, a mainstream definition of what a nation is or understanding what a nation is in the Anglo-American tradition and in other, other European traditions that are serious about the Old Testament. So if you, if you pick up, let's say, the King, the, the King James Bible, and you uh, look to, under, to, to try to see how is the, 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 word, the English word nation or, or uh, the related English word people, how is it used, that actually the, the fact that, there, that, that, uh, that the Bible uses these terms over and over again in the English translation, I, I think has histor historically done more to form the, uh, the English speaker's consciousness of what a nation is than, than anything else. And so the, uh, the, the Anglo and, to a certain extent, Western understanding of a nation is like biblical nations. That is, first of all, um, they, they, they arise out of tribes they have internal diversity, you know, like the 12 tribes of Israel, but this is true of other nations as well. They have internal diversity and 
a certain kind of commonality of culture, which can be language usually and religion probably, and they uh, unite and become a nation uh, in order to protect themselves from, um, uh, from could be the neighbors, but uh, more, more often in the Bible, it's some empire that's trying to take over everything and promising peace and prosperity in exchange. Um, this, uh, this view sees, sees nations as being you know, a, a, a semi-natural kind of thing. I mean, they, they definitely arise out of, uh, out of relations of, uh, of kin, kinship and, and language and so on, but, but very important uh, to emphasize is that biblical nations are not race-based. They're not racialist. There's no concept of, uh, of um, uh, biology as determining. So you get, you know, the Hebrews are leaving Egypt, and a whole bunch of Egyptians join them and stand with them at Mount Sinai and then get to be part of Israel. Or you have uh, Ruth the Moabite who uh, comes and joins uh, the Israelite people, and she declares, um, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And that becomes a, a, a template for a view of nation as um, a diverse group of tribes or peoples who come together uh, because they share something and because of a mutual loyalty. It, it, it may be something similar to what, what I think you call fraternity in, in some of your writings. Um, a, a mutual loyalty that says, I'm a part of you, you're a part of me, and we, we share something, right? Your God is my, my God. We share something. That mutual loyalty is certainly not race because you can, you can be a foreigner and join it. There isn't, there isn't a great problem with that. On the other hand, notice that it's not just a matter of immigration. You don't just physically move into some location and then you're part of the nation, but you have to be part of this relationship of mutual loyalty. You have to join that somehow. And the claim is that when you, you look at European history, you, you see all of these peoples, the, uh, the English, the Scots, the Dutch, the French, and many others, who look at this biblical concept of the nation and say, well, well, that's us. That's what we're like. And then use that as a, uh, a model for introducing what we then call the, the nation state or the national state, which ends up being, a, at least in theory, a, um, a non-imperial form of government. It's a, a, a state whose aim ultimately is to govern a single nation. Now, <clears throat> you used a very interesting phrase, people who come together on the basis of something. Yes. Now let's try to fill in the blank. Uh, as I understand your argument, I mean, th throughout the book, I counted multiple uses of the phrase language or religion. Yeah. Okay, not and, or. That suggests that people can come together into what you call a nation on the basis of something other than religion. Is that the case? It, it, it is the case. The, 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 full, the long playing version of the phrase is uh, a common culture usually uh, lang including language or religion. Mm -hmm. 
but but the, there are other can be other important elements. The the the, the English tradition is uh, share, does share English language in the Anglican Church, uh, but not less important is uh, is the English traditional constitution, uh, which then gets in significant part adopted by the the Americans, and this. Um, sense that uh, that we English or we Americans have a uh, a uniquely important constitutional heritage is is uh, absolutely central to uh, to that national to that national tradition. So I so I would say we're looking for some kind of uh, um, cultural markers that indicate to the tribes coming together that indicate what it is. Some kind of substance um, around which our mutual loyalty is built, but I don't want to be more specific because it can vary greatly from from one nation to another. Now, just to flag one of the major areas I think of disagreements of interpretation between us, you see a deep continuity between the Anglo America the the Anglo tradition of conservative political thought, and you list some of the leading figures in that, you know, the, res, you know, the, the resistors to the Stuart idea of divine right of kings, and you say that Americans simply took that over, in effect. Uh, there are those of us who see a pretty important gap, indeed a break, between that tradition as you define it and the American tradition, and a sign of that is your nonstop pummeling of John Locke, whose theory, <laughs> whose theory, along with Edmund Burke, you, you know, uh, whose theory you regard as utopian and disastrous. I think that that would not be an overstatement of your view. Uh, and uh, to reject John Locke, I would argue, is to reject the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Wow. Which Thomas Jefferson, you know, which Thomas Jefferson, you know, which Thomas Jefferson explained late in his life as no original thought on his part, but rather simply to express the common sense of the American mind. It was Jefferson's theory that the common sense of the American mind very much, very much uh, had absorbed and endorsed the idea of natural rights, understandable, graspable through reason alone and binding on all human beings. It seems to me that you're not comfortable with that idea. I'm, I'm very comfortable with the idea that uh, Americans, just like many other peoples, have a political left. And I'm not Thomas so- Thomas Jefferson is part of the political oh, left. Oh, he asked a question. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm not so comfortable with the, uh, with the recent, recent American habit of um, uh, eliding the more conservative aspects of the tradition. Um, so let's take, for example, um, John Adams. John Adams, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think anybody would, would suspect Adams of being unsympathetic to uh, the American founding and the American project. Um, he, Hamilton did, but that's another. Okay. <laughs> Jefferson too. Well, look, both both Hamilton and Adams are champions of this idea that the American Constitution fundamentally is 
uh, is the English Constitution, in some ways improved and in some ways not improved. And uh, Adams, in 1787, publishes a three-volume work in defense of the American constitutions, in plural, uh, defending both the, uh, the tradition of state constitutions and the, the, the new constitution. And I think it's uh, roughly right to say that those three volumes are devoted to um, easing your skepticism about the fact that the, the greatest constitution, the best constitution that has ever been in human history, according to Adams, is the English Constitution, the British Constitution, and that what's extraordinary and important about the American Constitution is the extent to which it is similar, that it, it takes and to a certain degree improves, but Adams also thinks that in some ways it doesn't improve. Now look, I, 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 don't, I, I don't have a horse in the race of trying to get Americans and Brits to love each other, all right? So it's not, it's not that you, you know, you've just absolutely got to you know, close that gap between the two traditions. There's certainly different traditions. I mean, one of them, one of them has uh, uh, monarchy and lords, and the other one has slavery. And, and uh, they're not the same. They're clearly not the same. But at the same time, if you take a couple of steps back and compare these, um, these uh, two English-speaking constitutional traditions, compare them to anything in France or Germany or Russia, uh, uh, compare them to their rivals, suddenly they will be very, very similar uh, indeed. Due process of law, the bicameral cameral legislature, which they consider to be an extremely important uh, aspect, uh, aspect of it, the, uh, the separation and division and balance of, of powers, uh, the, enumer the enumerated rights uh, in the Bill of Rights, almost all of which are, uh, are in earlier English constitutional documents. The, the executive veto, you could just go on and on. It, they're extremely similar, and Americans do a great disservice to their, to their capacity for conservatism when they um, jump to say, well, there was a miracle and in 1787, and the miracle gave us the, the best constitution in the world. Uh, the American constitution may be a variation on the best constitution in the world, but, but not because it was a spontaneously created miracle, but because of uh, six or 700 years of prior English constitutional trial and error, which the Americans succeeded in gaining from. I just want to, before moving on, I just want to, you know, I just want to flag this issue for the audience because uh, there are the book does raise very explicitly epistemological questions as well as political questions. The question of what can we know and how can we know it, and you know, in politics or anything else. And there's a big difference between arguing that the rights of Americans are essentially the rights of Englishmen derived from tradition. That's one argument, and it's an argument that had some currency in the United States during the revolutionary period, although the people who advanced that argument were not on the winning side for the most part. Uh, and it had some currency during the slavery debate. It was essentially the position that the defenders of slavery took. 
uh, that these were the rights of Englishmen and African Americans were Englishmen, and therefore, you know, you check out the Lincoln Douglas debates if you doubt me. And uh, oh, no, I, I don't. You know, and uh, uh, so, you know, so the question, the question of the fundamental basis of the American Republic is very much implicated in this discussion. But let me move on to an entirely different topic. Uh, an important part of the political argument of your book revolves around a dyad, you know, allegedly exclusive. There is nationalism or imperialism. There's no tertium quid. Did I read your book correctly? And if so, please explain that view. Well, there, there is a third, uh, a third leg to that. It's a triad because because there. The, uh, there is the order of a political order of clans and tribes. Let me just jump is, in for a second because imperialism, as you use it, is not necessarily the audience won't instinctively grasp that because you talk about the EU as an empire and even the modern U.S. in some ways is an empire. So let's could you first clarify what the dyad is and then talk about tertium quids, if any. Okay, um, the, the um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying I'm trying to describe since I'm as as you said, Bill, I'm, I'm unhappy with the Enlightenment inheritance in political theory, in which I, of course, was trained as as almost everybody else was. I I I don't like the uh, the uh, insistence on focusing on political thinkers who believed that the state was, in one way or another, the creation of a, of, a, uh, of a consensual contract among individuals. Um, I don't like it mostly because it's not true, um, meaning it's not historically true, but it's also not true in any other way, as far as I can tell. Um, but I also don't like it because um, I think it's possible to say that, you know, for many, many years, America was um, uh, America and other countries <laughs> under the influence of this Enlightenment theory of the founding of states was, um, uh, was flourishing and people were happy and uh, many good things happened and uh, uh, for example I'm very sympathetic to the eradication of slavery which I, I think you can give a lot of credit to that kind of theory for, for having pushed that forward but I'm not sure that things are going so well today. You know, how, how, how many people um, uh, in, in America, in Britain, in other countries, how many, how many people in America feel that uh, the political foundations of the country are clear, agreed upon, and solid, and they're working? All right, so I, just, just, just to, to name something that I, I don't really go into the book, but I think it's useful for this. 40% of children in the United States, if I'm not getting the number wrong, are now born outside of marriage. And I don't, I don't think that this, uh, or, or, or the, the fertility rate has, has dropped at this point to whatever the number was, 1.76, I think was the most recent. American and Europe, American and European countries are, um, they have some very, very serious Problems in terms of uh, are they are they capable of persisting into the future? Um, it wasn't the American Constitution wasn't just about 
uh, securing the blessings of liberty. It was about securing the blessings of, of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. And if there's going to be a posterity, then we have to understand if something's going wrong, what's going wrong. So what I, try, what I tried to do in the book is to offer what I take to be a, um, a revival of uh, an empiricist uh, political tradition in, uh, in English-speaking countries. And that, that tradition includes some famous names, people like John Stuart Mill and, uh, and uh, David Hume and Adam Smith. It includes other names that, that are less familiar but not less important, John Fortescue, John Selden, and others. And, um, in, in, and, and Adam Ferguson, I would say. And in, in that tradition, there is no social contract because none of these thinkers believe that the social contract is real. They think it's just not true. And what they, what they try to do is they try to understand what the actual historical and, and therefore the, 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 the uh, scientific basis for, the, for, for the, the state is. And they do it by beginning not with atomic individuals who consent to things, but rather with uh, the stickiness and cohesiveness of human groups of, uh, of families and clans and tribes and the way that they come together, either through um, the unification of their leaders under, under duress or uh, through conquest, the way those, those tribes come together in order to form states. The advantage when you look at things this way is I believe that, that when you look at things this way, suddenly all sorts of things become extremely clear. For example, it becomes extremely clear that the basis for, uh, for, uh, for freedom is in the cohesion, in the stickiness and mutual loyalty of a, of a tribal group. If a group of tribes can come to trust one another and see one another as brothers, as, 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 uh, uh, as, um, as a single nation, then you can ease up on oppression and tyranny and fear and coercion as the method of getting them to do things. Because if a group of people trust one another and care about one another, then when you come to ask them to pay taxes or obey the laws or, or uh, volunteer for military service where you might die, they say, sure, I'll do this for my people. But if you don't have that kind of mutual loyalty, and then you come and you ask them to pay taxes or obey the laws or do military service, say, what, I'm going to die for them? Are you kidding me? How about if they die for them? Right? You, 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 you won't do anything for them. So once you understand that, then you can look at, God forbid, a place like, uh, like Iraq or Syria or Yugoslavia. And you can immediately understand that the fact that we pretend that they have a flag and a national anthem doesn't mean that there's a nation there. There never was a nation. There was just an oppressor regime forcing them into the shape of a nation because, because that, that, that was rewarding to the oppressor to do that. But they were never a nation. And when you look at America today, and you ask, what is it that's so, why are we so, why are we so upset about what's happening in America today? Well, the reason we're so upset, or at least a, a central reason, is because the, uh, the cohesion and mutual loyalty that characterized America for most of its history 
is coming apart. And if you want to do something about that, then it's, it's not going to help you to, to pretend that you know, everybody are atomic citizens who, who, uh, who are uh, living under a state because, they're, because there was a social contract. It's not that, that pretending isn't going to help you. If you, if you want to do something to improve conditions, and I, I really do, then first we have to understand political reality. Well, let me just, you know, let me just flag another area of controversy that people may want to follow up on, and that is I find it very, <laughs> let, me, let me step back. I think that your book represents a very interesting effort to universalize the biblical account of how nations come into being. Uh, and that takes you so far, but it also forces you to use words like tribe and clan uh, that comport much more comfortably with certain kinds of experiences than others. It also makes it difficult for you to um, understand American distinctiveness, if I may be so bold, because if you look at the very beginning of the Federalist Papers, it talks about political arrangements based on reason and choice. Uh, and if you look at the origins of the American Constitution, famously, uh, not the 12 tribes, but the 13 colonies had to come together voluntarily. right? And each one had to set up a representative consultative mechanism. That sounds a lot like consent to me. And I think that if Jews are the chosen people, Americans are the choosing people. Uh, <laughs> and you know, seriously. And, you know, and I find it difficult to privilege one of those conceptions of coming together and cohesion over others. Uh, or to put it slightly differently, you referred to, to Ruth earlier, Yoram. The United States is a nation of Ruths, seriously. Right? And whatever may, have been, whatever may have been the commonalities at the beginning, you know, and you refer in your book, as I do in mine, to John Jay's Federalist Paper Number Two that talks about you know the, the marvelous unity of the American people. Although historians were telling you that John Jay was blowing smoke even when he wrote that, <laughs> whether or not that's true, it certainly isn't true anymore. Uh, we are of diverse religions, diverse ethnic ethnic heritages, uh, and. When all of the roots that make up America came to America and came together to make and remake America, they did so on the basis of a commonality, which, you know, and Lincoln defined us, as you know, as a nation dedicated to a proposition, which as a first draft of a definition of the United States is not bad. Uh, and so... You know, I am, I am finding it, and I think some people in the audience are finding it very difficultly, difficult to square your universalization of the biblical account of nationhood with our distinctive experience of nationhood. Now, you're entitled to reply that the fact that we have perhaps, maybe we started with a biblical understanding but don't have it anymore, that would be your account, uh, the fact that we now have a non-biblical understanding of nationhood does not entitle us to impose that understanding on the rest of the world. And I agree with that. Uh, 
But that raises another point. Are universalism and imperialism the same thing in your view? Now let me state my prior so you know what you have to respond to. In my view, an idea can be universalist without being imperialist, not warranting its forcible imposition on people who happen not to have come to that universal view. And that is a classic American view of universally binding principles. The fact that they are universally binding does not warrant a particular country that already feels itself bound to those principles to impose those on anyone else. And I can't figure out where you stand on that issue. Well, first of all, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I agree that it's possible um, not, not just theoretically, it may, may, it may be that you can point to all sorts of his, historical moments where, where this has existed. Mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly possible to have, um, to have for a people to have uh, a message that, that that people, that tradition, their religious tradition or political tradition, that, that they see as best and not only best for them personally, like particularly, but, but best for the world. Let the light go forth from Zion. Right, and, and to not necessarily think that that means they need to conquer everybody. Right. So you, you, you're right that that is a, a, a cornerstone of, uh, of the, the, the Jewish tradition and of Christian tradition to the extent that the, the Christians hold tight to the, to the Old Testament anyway, at least. Um, but it, it's also true. I mean, you can also say that it, that, that it's it, it's true of uh, of India with its Hindu tradition, which is cer certainly a, a a message for mankind and is 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 not historically a, an attempt to take over the world. I'm I'm sure we could come up with lots of other examples. In in theory, you can have that. Um, the the specific uh, issue that I, I'm that I'm wrestling with right now is. I want to understand how did Americans go from being um, that kind of a nation which um, uh, wanted, wanted its own experiment to uh, be a contribution to all humanity, but without necessarily having to go and impose it on the rest of the world, to being a, um, a nation, at least many of whose leaders don't have a problem simply saying uh, rules-based world order, um, they're misbehaving in, uh, in wherever, in, in Iraq, in Serbia, in, in, in Libya, in Egypt, they're misbehaving, so let's start bombing. Okay, I, I, I want to understand the transition. So just to be clear, you now think of the United States as an imperial power? Look, I understand that everything, that, all oh, come on. No, no, I, 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 I'm going you to say so in your book. No, so. I'm, I'm, going, I'm absolutely going to say, say well, first of all, th thank you for helping me get it out. But, <laughs> I, I, but uh, no, no I, I, I definitely want to say yes, but, but I, the reason I, I want to hedge is because, uh, because the, um, uh, the, the, the fact that, um, uh, that uh, let's say, the Reagan administration was fighting the Cold War all over the globe in order to defend American interests and to defend the interests of American allies and incidentally also for the good of mankind, doesn't immediately make it an imperial power. Right? You, you, I mean, it, 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 it means that it was struggling, struggling against the Soviet Union, which was definitely an imperial power, and 
that, uh, that it did all sorts of things in order to defend itself against an imperial power. The, the moment, the, troub the troubling moment for me is the moment when the Soviet Union um, collapses and the enemy is gone and you get um, some individuals, uh, uh, Irving Kristol, Gene Kirkpatrick, um, calling to bring, to oh, the war is over, let's bring, bring the boys home. And the decision that, that is made, I, I, I think with astonishingly little public debate, although there was plenty of academic debate, but in terms of public debate, the decision that was made was uh, as uh, as President Bush put it, the, the, the father, um, that we now are going to enter into an age that thousands of generations tried to achieve but failed at, in which the law of the jungle is going to be re re replaced by the rule of law. And that rule of law is going to emanate in one way or another from, uh, from uh, the Western powers. Uh, probably just from the United States, ultimately, I think. I think we've had a number of administrations which have not sensed the extremely close kinship between that worldview and the Roman Empire, the, the, uh, the, the, Holy, the, the Holy Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the British Empire. Now, intellectuals know that there's a kinship because when, when you start reading the, the, the think tankers and the academics and the foreign policy specialists who are writing about this world order, they, they don't stop referring to the Roman Empire and the British Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so so they, they know that this is a, a Roman imperialist heritage, no matter how they dress it up, they know. But the public doesn't know. The public is not aware of this. The public is not aware that, that, there, that, that there was a transition that was made on the part of many people from a, some kind of an, uh, a national state model uh, where, uh, uh, where Americans think that their way of life is best, but, but it's not, they don't think it's their job to impose it on anybody to a, uh, 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 we're the policemen of the world model, where Americans know their way of life is best, and why not impose it on everyone? Because, because we're right, and we have the power to do so. That, that is a transition to an, to, to an imperialist way of thinking, and I think that Americans, not to speak of other nations, would probably be better off if they let go of that. So I know there are a lot of imperialists in the audience who are itching to take a shot at you. So I'm going to ask you one more question and then yield the floor for the last half hour. Is that right? Uh, as I read your book, uh, your view of nationalism would prevent nations, as you define them, from voluntarily coming together and surrendering part or all of their sovereignty to some higher power. Uh, and so what you're saying, what you're saying in effect, uh, let me back up. On my account, that is the way the Constitution of the United States came into being, where 13 colonies, after due reflection, uh, consented to surrender a portion of their sovereignty to a higher power details to come. 
okay? and the details have been spooling out ever since. You seem to regard it as illegitimate that nations of Europe might have made a similar decision. Now, perhaps I've misunderstood you on that point. You think that the EU is a mistake, but do you think it's a mistake because nations in principle simply aren't allowed to do that sort of thing? I, 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 uh, I write about this in, uh, explicitly. I, I don't think that it's in principle a mistake for, uh, for nations to uh, un unite for the common good. That, that, that's not in principle a mistake. The example that I give is, um, let's say that the Dutch um, decide that they are going to be better off if they become part of the Federal Republic of Germany. They'll, they'll simply be, become a, uh, another tribe within German federalism. I, I don't think that's, an, that's not an impossibly fanciful scenario. It's conceivable. Uh, to me, personally, it's troubling that uh, the Dutch, who have such an extraordinarily uh, important and splendid history of their own, um, and have contributed so much to uh, mankind that they should sort of disappear and become part of Germany. I, th that, that bothers me. But if you ask me, is, is it morally wrong? Is it impermissible? Is it some catastrophic mistake other than the fact that you know, the, 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 the Dutch should have more respect for their own ancestors and for their own worth as a nation? No, there isn't a big problem there. What's the big problem? The big, big problem is if instead of saying, look, we're small people, we're a small tribe, we want to become part of a larger nation. This has happened you know, infinite numbers of times in, in history, and it will continue to happen. Instead of saying that, they say, no, we want to contribute our resources to a project of eliminating nations. Right? The, the United Nations is, is not a nation. It's not like, it's not parallel to the United States. The, 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 uh, the American founders thought that they were creating a nation. And um, th by the way, they, they certainly didn't think that they were a nation of Ruths. They thought that they were, um, they thought that what they had was uh, overwhelmingly a tradition that is English-speaking, common law, uh, and Protestant. And they were sufficiently believing in those things that they were able to make room and space to add additional tribes, Catholic tribe, Jewish tribe, uh, ultim uh, ultimately even, thank God, the, 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 uh, uh, the African-Americans who had gone through slavery. And I think that that's generally true, that, that a very strong national identity is capable of adding, adopting into it um, tribes that are, not, uh, that are not identical. This happens all over the world. And, and here I, I disagree with your use in, in your book of, of the word homogenous. Nations are never homogenous. They're always tribal. They always consist of, a, of a, an internal diversity of tribes. And what that means is that, that a strong nation with a strong mutual loyalty and a strong identity has the ability often to add a smaller uh, additional tribe and in that way to, to expand itself and make, make itself more diverse and more, more ecumenical. That, that's historically possible. And that's what the American founders did. 
But they, they did not. What they didn't do is what the Europeans are trying to do, which is to, in principle, create an institution which is multinational, which is, instead of ruling, uh, uh, unifying to create one strong nation and then adding to it, adding additional small tribes to it, but attempting to maintain something of the original uh, uh, spirit and traditions, they're doing the opposite. They are saying, let's take dozens and dozens of nations, and we will simply abstract away from everything that is their past. Just look at the euro. All, so those, those buildings don't exist anywhere. Instead of saying, you know, let, let's take the greatest architecture from, from Europe, they just invented artificial non-existent architecture because, because it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a theoretical construct with no past. Now, the, the Europe has no, in principle, th in principle um, uh, borders. The number of nations that can be included in it is, in theory, the entire world. And I do consider it to be immoral, I, I, I mean, like uh, uh, wrong, for a nation to, for a nation to say, what are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to, take the resources we have rather than, than strengthening some national tradition that we'd like to be a part of because it's this particular national tradition we think is good and worthy, instead of that saying, no, we're eliminating national traditions in general in, in favor of, uh, of a universal empire. It's wrong because we have no record of a, uh, of a multinational empire that is capable over time of uh, defending freedoms, individual freedoms. We have no record of a multinational empire that's capable over time of defending national freedoms. We have only records, I mean, the, the, the only thing that we know for sure about the history of multinational states is that they quickly find that, that their existence depends on, on, uh, uh, on oppressing and tyrannizing some of the nations uh, over which they rule. This, by the way, this is John Stuart Mill's argument uh, ag against multinational empires, that there is no way to create a, a, an actual uh, mutual loyalty among these nations. And the only way to rule them is by oppressing them. So and the United Kingdom is a failure. No, the United Kingdom is exactly the, the biblical model that I described. It's Scotland it, is, is or isn't a nation. Let's say Scotland is a nation, okay? I mean, look, these terms are fluid. You could call well, them I, tribes. Well, maybe that's the point I'm trying to make. Well, that the, the terms are fluid is not a point against me. I, I, I say that ex explicitly in my book. You can call them nations. You can call them tribes. The argument is exactly the same. It doesn't matter. In, 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 the, UK, in, the, in the UK, they they refer to the four nations, right? They say England is a nation, Scotland is a nation, Wales is a nation, and Ireland is a nation. But what are they? They are just like the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the American model that we discussed, or like uh, uh, an overwhelmingly Hindu India, which nonetheless um, uh, uh, protects and defends uh, non-Hindus. England is the dominant nation. England always was the dominant nation. It still is the dominant nation, but it's able to add um, uh, to adopt, if you will, smaller, 
nationalities, smaller national groupings. I would call them tribes, but you don't have to call it if you don't want to. Um, and to bring them in uh, within a framework not of, uh, uh, of some kind of theoretical equality, but actually within a framework of uh, England is the dominant nation. Um, it is beneficial for the Scots and the English to work together. They've worked together for, at, at this point, depending on how you count, three or four hundred years. And um, that's a, a great model of, of, uh, of, of a success, successful, diverse nation. The Church of England is the church in England. The Church of Scotland is the church in Scotland. The Irish have a Church of Ireland. So they, 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 they have a, uh, a federal structure even before the Americans had a federal structure. So how would this be different if the EU actually did develop into a nation based on consent of all these tribes, the German tribe, the French tribe, the Italian tribe? I'm just not sure I see the difference in principle. There's no dominant, there's, there's no dominant nation. So there's no nation. I mean, what I'm saying is, if you have a strong nation, and that nation consists Well, of, many would say that is Germany in Europe, and that the EU is a soft form of German domination. Would that make it better in your eyes? What per, it, If Germany actually were the dominant? Because then it sounds like maybe the EU would be Germany's UK, so to speak. I, I, I'm, I'm, having I'm having trouble understanding the analogy. What percentage of the European Union is German? I'm not. Let's let's take a guess. What what is it? Twenty percent? Ten percent? I mean, you, you're talking about about a vast con co continent that is dominated by uh, that under your proposal that's dominated by a tiny German minority, which is the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Holy Roman Empire, just resurrected. The Germans are going to rule everybody else. And Mill's claim, which I endorse in the book, is that that can only bring about tyranny. And we already see that it's bringing about tyranny. They're not capable of governing this, this, this imperial con construct on a democratic basis because there's no internal cohesion among the parts. And there's no way to develop internal co cohesion among the parts because they don't share in their own subjective sense. They don't. The, the, these peoples don't don't share anything. With but them. if they did, it wouldn't be a problem. This is too hypothetical for me. Well, I'm, well, I'm at, I guess I'm at trying to ask a sort of I, theoretical question. I, 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 we have the because, it, we have because in a lot of parts of the world, like Africa, this is really quite concrete. And I guess the real question I wanted to, to ask, and then we'll turn it to the audience, is um, so much of the world doesn't have nations at this point. Um, you know, or that, or the concept of nation is so contested. Is there an Arab nation, a Muslim nation, a Palestinian nation? Uh, is Nigeria a nation? Is South Africa a nation? Um, and if if a place, if a state isn't a nation, and maybe the various people groups in that nation or are too small or don't have a historic kind of development that prepares them for nationhood, how should they govern themselves? Um, and, you know, and what is the implication of the idea that there is a universal model of state formation and foundation 
that actually doesn't apply to large numbers of, of people in the world. I, I think, Walter, I think you very much want me to be proposing a, uh, a kind of a uh, mathematical universal doctrine of the kind that I just don't think can be generated or can work. And there have been people who've proposed these kinds of things. So you can, you can go to Mazzini or maybe to Woodrow Wilson, you know that better than I do. But I, I don't defend anything like that in the book. My, my, my proposal is uh, much more limited. The world is governed best when it is governed with the aim of trying to establish independent nations and to allow them their freedom. That claim doesn't include an assertion that that's possible every place in the world right now or ever. It, it's only an observation that the things that we like, like, uh, uh, like um, uh, individual freedoms and limited government and, uh, uh, and the, the kind of science and culture that's the result of intense competition among diverse independent national states. Those things, that, those kinds of things that we like, we will lose them if we're not vigilant about protecting our national state system. Does that mean that every place in the world that it's possible? I, I doubt it. Some places in the world are going to be uh, um, uh, very close to tribal anarchy. And some peoples are going to, therefore, uh, live under dictatorship for a very, very, very long time because tribal anarchy or dictatorship are the only options that there are going to be. I'd, I'd very much like it if, um, if uh, Americans, among others, could see that reality, face it as reality, and uh, stop um, uh, generating theoretical constructs that say, no, it must be the case that everything in the world can be pressed into our model, because that's not possible. It can't, it can't be. At the same time, there are places where we can see peoples that, um, that do look like maybe they have the ability to adopt this kind of model. Um, we, we, we've in the past discussed the Kurds. And I mean, there, there's 30 million people with, uh, with a commonality of, of language, a, a high degree of, it seems, of uh, internal cohesion, some kind of sympathy towards the West, at least you know, more than the surrounding countries. And so that makes me sympathetic to, uh, to their aspirations. Is it the case that every place in Africa that we could find something similar? Maybe, maybe not. But I, that, that I don't see that as a, a challenge to anything I wrote in my book. It only is a challenge to someone who would take my book and say, now let's turn this into a mathematical construct that has to be applied now to every place in the world. And I don't propose that. And I propose that you don't propose it either. Thanks. OK, I still think there would be a problem for anybody trying to derive practical policy from the book. And maybe it's my problem that I think that way. Um, all right, let's get questions from the audience. I'm sure we have plenty. Uh, let's see, uh, sir. Yeah. Uh, the learned are we Wait for the microphone, please. Yeah, the learned uh, Yarum Hamni 
has basically said in one of his statements very elegantly that at the Exodus, the Goyim joined with the Jews for a, for a, new, a new state or a new nation. And then we have all the Goyim nations. Okay, let's get to the question. Okay, then we get to the, the, the Goyim nations in the West who basically said, okay, the Buffalo, the Buffalo Declaration is there, make a new Israel. And then the founding of Israel was done. And the reason was that maybe Israel being founded would make all the Semite people in that area okay. join Israel. And the question? The question is, today, Israel will not recognize the Palestinian occupied territories uh, as Palestinian territories and as such they are not a nation so Israel is having a, a severe problem with the UN with the United Nations peacekeeping uh, negotiations now how how is nationalism going to work if Israel practices imperialism okay please I, I don't, I, I think that you can be, um, uh, you can be a, an Israeli Jewish nationalist and think, as many do, uh, that, that Israel should give up um, on, uh, on the West Bank, on the Palestinian territories, in order to strengthen Israel as a Jewish nation state. That's a completely legitimate, legitimate position. Um, there are problems with it, and you will find that there are these kinds of problems um, in, uh, along the borders uh, between all sorts of nations, uh, b between India and Pakistan, between uh, Britain and Ireland. Uh, na nations have border problems, and uh, the uh, the majority party in uh, in Israel sees the country as being, if you include the West Bank, 40 miles wide. Uh, it's a very very small territory. Uh, the, the they they consider any kind of solution for uh, for self determination for the Palestinians ultimately to be in the framework of uh, some kind of larger Sunni Arab state because they don't think that the that the uh, that uh, that an independent West Bank can has the um, the cohesiveness or the economic or military abilities uh, to defend itself as a tolerable state if it's evacuated it'll end up immediately like Gaza which is to say it'll be a uh, it's likely to be an uh, uh, a fanatical hostile power which will do da damage to Jordan and to Israel and to other countries. And so the majority in Israel do not consider uh, establishing a, uh, a national state, a tribal state for the Palestinians in the West Bank to be feasible. I, I really don't think, and this is probably where Walter is going to say, see, the book doesn't, uh, doesn't dictate policies to me. Um, I think that the book that the book dictates policies at the level of um, opposing 
opposing the giving up of sovereignty, the giving up of national independence uh, by strong nations that are capable of maintaining their independence. What is worrisome? Let him finish, and then we have to take another okay. question, I'm afraid. Um, give, giving up that sovereignty to that national independence in order to join into some kind of uh, imperial mul multinational thing, which I think will in the end be destructive. All right. Let's see. Yes, ma'am. The microphone is coming around. Um, Sarah Stern from the Endowment for Middle East Truth. Um, thank you for doing this very, very much. We need this. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'll just give you one, okay? In terms of a policy suggestion, how do you think this book um, suggests um, a policy towards open borders? It seems as though you're saying that there has to be some kind of cohesion and values for a nation state to exist. And there are many on the left who believe there should be no, you know, no sense of um, of restrictions on who comes into this country. Well, you know, I, 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 I've I've been no noticing that this is uh, this is not this is not the simple right left issue that uh, that that you would think. And Bernie Sanders recently came out. If I if I caught, caught this correctly, came, came out with a very strong statement about uh, the, the need for borders and the importance of the nation state. And um, even, even, even Bill Clinton during the past year uh, made, made some statements in the nationalist direction which explicitly referred to as nationalist. I'm not completely sure. I mean, maybe at this moment it looks like it's a right-left issue, but but I, I don't think it's entirely a right-left issue. If if you if you listen to what Sanders is saying, what he's saying is that the 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 possibility of the possibility of of a um, of a socialist America as he imagines it is 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 only possible when there's sufficient internal cohesion so that the, the, the wealthier Americans will want to help the poorer Americans. And if there, there isn't that kind of uh, internal cohesion, then, then you can't have socialism. Okay, now, that, that's, that's, a, that's not a new argument. That's, that's an old argument. The, I think it's going to end up being that if you're a liberal and, you, and the most important thing to you is individual freedoms, you'll find that the kinds of sacrifices that need to be made in order to allow individual freedoms to exist are only possible within, within a, a, a solid unified national state. And if you're a socialist, then the kinds of sacrifices that you need in order to have a social state are also going to end, end up being only possible within a national state. In any case, you're going to have to have borders, and you're going to have to decide who's coming in and out. And if, it, it, look, it's possible to, if you don't like borders and you think that they're a terrible thing, then you'll look at the national state model and you'll say, look, Yoram, um, borders are nasty. And, uh, and, and not only that, but nations, and, and this is a serious argument against nationalism that, that, that uh, Eli Kaduri, among others, makes. 
national states are always squabbling about borders. Maybe, maybe they don't have some kind of universal vision for taking over the world, but they sure squabble all the time about, about borders. And that's real bloodshed, and that can lead to real injustice. And all of this is, is, is just true. This is simply true. The argument of my book is that this is better. It's better to allow a diversity of nations, better to allow bordered, cohesive entities that at least have a chance of executing um, uh, uh, wonderful projects like individual, a constitution of individual liberties. They at least have a chance of doing that and, have, and allow a, a diversity of nations, in effect, a world of experiments where the different independent nations, each one is an experiment in what it means to be uh, for, for a human society to live. That's better than having somebody come up with the rules for everyone, and that's what we're going to try to impose. But borders are never going to be pretty. Um, yes. Hello. Um, you make an argument that nation states are an organic formation of kind of tribal groups. Uh, when we talk about nations here, you talk about United States, France, UK, they weren't formed from these kind of groups. That, that national identity was created f often through you know, oppressive or imperialistic uh, regimes. How do you, uh, I guess, how would you answer the question that often a national identity or conception of a nation state is the result of an imperialistic or an oppressive structure that creates that national identity itself for its own ends? Well, I, I, didn't, use the, I didn't use the word organic. I, I, I mean, there, there's, there might be other people who use the word, word organic. I think that that's just uh, too simple, because I, I think you're right. Um, my, my, dis my description of state formation um, includes the possibility of, um, uh, of a voluntary unification, which, which is the kind of model that we see in, uh, in uh, that's, that's the Dutch model, the English model, the American model. I'm talking about the original English unification of the tribes. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and some states are created, some, some nations are created through, uh, through conquest. And, and I, as I say, there are also things in between where, where there's a, a partial unification voluntarily and partially through, through con conquest. Uh, the argument is uh, not that these different routes towards um, a cohesive nationality are impossible. They, they are all historically attested and possible. The argument is that if you don't succeed in creating um, uh, a cohesive nation, then only oppression is going to hold it together in the end. And so you can't just um, say, well, um, it doesn't matter what the historical background of these different peoples or tribes or nations is. Uh, we're going to find a way to force them all to be a nation. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It can't work. Pe peoples don't don't respond well to that. Now it may be that um, sufficient violence will will put an end to the resistance. So uh, the, the the French spent a couple of uh, centuries eradicating um, uh, non-French languages, and and uh, the the numbers of the killed are apparently fantastically high, nobody really knows. If you, if you kill enough people, 
then you'll be able to take uh, uh, re resistant peoples, tribes, nations, and force them to be uh, part of your nation. Um, but first of all, notice the, uh, the incredible cost of doing so. And second, if, if you have not, if you, if you haven't succeeded in this, these horrific steps that you're willing to take in order to create a new nation, if you don't succeed in it, and much of the time you don't succeed, then what you have is a, uh, a regime which is internally unstable, um, is never actually going to be able to develop internal mutual cohesion, and therefore has no hope of being able to uh, to, 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 to reach limited government or, or individual liberties or any of the other things you'd like to see happen. Over here, yes, ma'am. Hi, in the beginning, you, you addressed um, the attacks on religion and the family. And by the way, it's actually 50% illegitimate children as of last year, which is gonna have repercussions down the road. Um, do you address anything about the basis of what is behind this, which is cultural Marxism, which is being pushed in the... In, in I don't think it's cultural Marxism. I, uh, I write about this in the book and in some other recent papers that, um, uh, that, that I've published. And um, this is what Bill was alluding to earlier that, that he, he found troubling is... Um, what, what did you say? My 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 relentless or, or I don't know. Maybe you just said annoying attacks on John Locke and so on. Not say annoying. Okay, so <laughs> okay, whatever whatever it was. Um, look, I I I'm certainly willing. I, I want to have a conversation well, about. You mentioned also. You mentioned professors. Um, that's been though that that goes back decades. There's a lot of Marxists. There's actually um, you can find it on YouTube and Facebook. It's called Film Your Marxist Professor. And uh, oh, look, I, I, I know college I, students are quoting it. And I did have actually one other question. No, no, wait, well, wait, 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 one per customer, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. We've got a lot of people here. Walter, if I could, yeah, sure. if I could just add Please. You know, a small footnote here, because I, I do think that it, it points to another very important, if I may say so, theoretical issue that you've raised in the book. Uh, your argument seems to be that if consent is made the basis of political authority, it will necessarily expand like a noxious gas until it's seen as the basis of all authority, including authority within families, et cetera. Uh, number one, that's not what Locke said, right? And if you, if you look at his various reflections on education and, and, and the family, you know, I think it will be hard to reach that conclusion. It is perfectly possible to have an understanding of political authority, which is not isomorphic with your understanding of why parents have or ought to have authority over their children. Right? Okay. Rejecting the family model of political authority is not to reject the family model of family authority. Fair enough. Uh, look, there, you're right. There, there, there are many different, uh, different issues here, and they're all really interesting. We don't have time to get to them now. That's a big one, because no, you no, see no. the expansion of consent as the basis of Okay, so, so let, let me see if I can yeah. cut quickly to, okay. to address. Uh, I'm going to, uh, we'll you know, get right back no, to, I'm, no, you can. I'm just going to jump in and say, we had said we were going to end this at 1.30, and I know some of you may have 
appointments that you need to get to. But because thanks to the fire alarm we started late, we're going to let it run an extra 10 minutes. But you can leave now with no penalty if you need to. <laughs> the rest of you can, can stay and later buy a book. Okay, look, I, um, I'm proposing in, in, in this criticism, it's not just a criticism of, of, of luck. I'm criticizing uh, the, the enlightenment model for thinking about political society, which plus minus includes Hobbes and Locke and, and Rousseau, Spinoza, Kant, let's say, and, and then down to Rawls and Nozick. And the reason I want that, that this is important to me is because I want to try to understand what's going wrong. And I don't insist that I've got the right answer. I'm, making, I'm, 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 I'm proposing something that looks to me like, like a, 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 a causal description of what's going wrong with, uh, with um, uh, free government in, in the West right now, not just in America, but in, in general. And what I do insist is that if, if my argument is not good enough, if it isn't, if it isn't true, I mean, if it just people just read it and they, they think about it and they feel like this can't be right, what I do insist is that that doesn't free anyone from the responsibility of coming up with an alternative causal, causal explanation of what's going wrong. Right? And that, because I think that's, that's crucially missing. It's not sufficient to say, um, well, we're happy with, um, with uh, uh, with the claim that's, that uh, that straights, that uh, government is the res is the result of consent, consent among perfectly free and perfectly e equal individuals, and that uh, that uh, universal reason uh, will arrive at the right answers. That that set of axioms, you don't like that. Okay, well. That's, that's how I understand these axioms, and I, and I see them as being causal. That if, if you teach generation after generation of young people, in the absence of any countervailing, um, uh, balancing um, sources of political ideas, if you teach them this enlightenment view in the absence of uh, balance from uh, the Bible, from the uh, the Anglo-American nationalist tradition. If if you erase the religious and nationalist heritage, and you just try to work with that enlightenment, those enlightenment axioms, then what I what what I suggest is, people will actually come out thinking that life is about consent. And so then what happens is that uh, two people want to get married. They have this vision that they're going to stay married, but they've been deprived of the tools of being able to stay married. It's because the, the claim that your own freedom and consent day after day after day is what holds together a marriage is false. It isn't true. It's not true for marriages. It's not true for tribes, and it's not true for nations, and it's not true for, for states. It's just false. That is not a sufficient description of what holds together any kind of uh, of, of 
um, strong human collective historically. So what does hold it together? Well, it's, it's, these, it's these mutual loyalties, which are eh, partly based on consent. A, a husband and wife, uh, a, a couple getting married, they did consent once. But it's a mistake to think that they keep consenting, because that's not what holds them together. What holds the husband and wife together 30 years into it you know, once all the once all the glitter is gone and the children are are you know doing what children do, and it's just painful. It's really painful, and and <laughs> what what holds you together? I, I have I have nine children. <laughs> what 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 holds what holds me and my wife together? And I'm not I I, I don't mean we don't love each other. I mean the opposite. I mean that what holds us together is is the is loyalty and not consent because there are days that I get up and and I'm sure it's true for for my wife too there are days that I get up and one of my kids is telling me exactly what they think of me and uh, and and I say you know I never consented to this <laughs> I didn't I didn't consent to it all right we have time for another question yes you <laughs> Thank you so much. I like your, your conceptualization of a country as a, as a group of tribes um, and getting them to engage with each other. But I also see the perspective behind Walter's questions. And I would propose a way of reconciling them is you know, to distinguish between rational allegiance and instinctual allegiance. Rational allegiance calls us to a, to a higher level of ideals and principles. Instinctual allegiance is to the tribe you know, based on religion, language, whatever. Of the examples, I did two quick illustrations. The British Empire, of which I, I, I consider myself a son of the British Empire and I'm a big aficionado. Depending on whether you ask the ruled or the uh, an empire dedicated to very noble ideas, but, but depending whether you ask the ruled or the ruler, that are very different ideas of tribalism with respect to each other. Europe, my field for a long time in foreign policy, the European Union dedicated to very noble, rational ideas, but populism, you know, pulling countries and people away instinctually. So how do you reconcile these two rational allegiance and what I call instinctual allegiance, really maybe the, the, the theory and the practice of the world as we see it, or do you even reconcile them or just you know, let people? If there's a tussle between the two, I would submit that instinctual allegiance will always be more powerful. It's a very gut instinct. It's troubling, but it's true. Thank you. I, I th uh, look, I, I think you're, you're right that the, the, there is an instinctive, overwhelmingly powerful force that we're dealing with. I, I, I call it mutual loyalty. You're, you're calling it instinctive allegiance. I, I think we can, I think we can um, refine the descriptions, but what is important is that enlightenment models of how political life works and how political legitimacy is generated and where political obligation comes from do not include this force, which is the most powerful force in all of human politics. And so what happens is that you, 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 you get today many, many of the people that you see on television or, or, or radio talking about these issues they they have in their mind an an 
enlightenment model where everybody's individual atoms and everything's consent. And they'll say things, I mean, prominent, intelligent, serious people, they'll say things like, I don't, belo I don't belong to any tribe. I belong to no tribe. I I I'm just, you know, I'm just myself. But this is, this is completely false. You, you, this individual belongs to uh, the, the libertarian clan of the academic tribe. And, <laughs> and, 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 and he or she you know, says the same things that everybody else in that tribe says. I mean, maybe slightly differently, but basically it refers to the same authors, refers, quotes the same exact texts from the, those authors, the, the same exact line from the Declaration of Independence, the same exact line from, from Abraham Lincoln. It, it, it's exactly the way that, that tribal cultures work. And what, what I'm asking is, to move from a false construct of the way political life works to some kind of true construct that describes the world that we live in politically, which I believe will then enable us to, um, to, uh, build, to build and defend and maintain political institutions that we deeply care about because they really are wonderful uh, to an extent that we cannot today. We are coming to the end even of our overtime. Uh, Bill, do you have any closing remarks you'd like to make? Uh, well, two. First of all, this is a conversation that has just begun. And I think everybody in the room understands that not only have you, most of your questions been left unanswered, but most of the questions that reasonable people could debate have been left, left, un, left unanswered. But just, just ending on the note that Iram had ended on, I think we need to make a distinction between what sustains a political community and what legitimates a political community. And you're absolutely right that these intense ties of loyalty are vital for sustaining a community. Uh, but first of all, they may not be sufficient. Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural, appealed famously to the mystic chords of memory. Those chords broke. They weren't strong enough. And I think we have to reflect on why that sense of mutual loyalty wasn't strong enough to override deep disagreements of principle. That's, that's point number one. Secondly, you know, secondly, I think that systematically throughout your book, you do underestimate the element of consent that enters into transactions that we'd, we would consider appropriate, whether individually or politically. Uh, you appear to endorse the idea that husbands and wives should consent to get married before they get married, which you know, not, everybody, not everybody agrees with that, by the way. But I will further say that if, you know, that if an army goes out captures someone in another, another country, brings that person back, involuntarily naturalizes that person and says, OK, now you're a citizen of us. You're part of our community. That person is entitled to say, no, I'm not, because I didn't consent to this arrangement. And so I really do think, rather than throwing the consent baby out with the consent bathwater, we ought to look at ways of balancing the idea of consent and the idea of loyalty. So I'll just have to agree with you. Good. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that note, I think we can draw this to a close.
It's been a terrific discussion, and clearly the issues that Yoram is raising in this book are vital issues. The conversation that he wants to, to help lead and participate in is one that needs to be had, and there's a perspective undervalued and understudied that, that affinities of the heart, affinities of history, must also somehow be a part of politics today. How it all works out, I think, is very much up for debate. But you guys have been a terrific group, and I want to thank you, and especially thank these two wonderful panelists. A really great event. <laughs>